0: You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California.
1: Thank you. I'm a paper and props woman. So I'm very glad to be with you all. Um, it is my second time with you, um, but I know that we don't necessarily know each other very well. Um, and it's always a risk you know, to have someone uh, come in who's not part of your everyday life and then have something to offer that might connect. So I'm hoping it will. <laughs> Some of this I'm sure might be um, things you've heard before, um, especially since you're doing a series. And, but then I always say that repetition is not bad because that's how things kind of begin to sink in. And then every time we hear something, it's like watching a movie again, you know what I mean? All of a sudden you notice something you hadn't paid attention to before. Um, So even if I'm saying something you might already know, hopefully I'm also saying something uh, that brings a little bit more uh, insight and reflection to your thinking about this topic. just to get a little bit more comfortable myself. I'm not a very good, uh, this is not a comfortable place for me. You put me in the classroom and I forget time and space. I'm like there. But in front of churches, it's always a little different. Um, But um, I love country music. I listen to country music on my way here. I shave my head about every four days. Um, started as a solidarity haircut with my mom, who was about to start chemo, so we shaved each other's head. But that was like over 10 years ago, and I just really liked it. As soon as I did it, I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> this is staying. Um, I'm just trying to get comfortable with you all. And another way that I get comfortable is with food. So I did bring snacks. <laughs> so feel free to take one and pass it down. I always think eating just kind of loosens everything up, you know, so, all right. I think we're good now. I'm better. Um, So we have a topic of feminist theology. And I'm sure you've already gotten some kind of introductions um, to what these terms mean, how they come together. Um, But I'm gonna just offer you some more. Um, First, feminism, what is it? Anybody have their best definition of feminism? The one you've heard? Do you? No? Okay. Yeah, you almost look like you're about to say something. So a movement that affirms that women should be treated as equal. Society, work, and the home yeah, that's a pretty good one, um, pretty straightforward. Rosemary Radford Ruther, feminist theologian, is, um, gives one definition that people like a lot because it's, you know, pretty straightforward that way, but the affirmation of the full humanity of women. And you would think that doesn't need to be said out loud, right, um, but part of the reason why it has to be said is that we know that we have these embedded patterns in our society that really put women as not equals, you know, in many ways. I mean, you mentioned the workforce and the home, Um, so yeah. So one definition, the affirmation of the full humanity of women. Tell me your name. Randy. Randy also said a movement, right? You said the movement too. Well, that's Bell Hook's definition. Bell hooks talks about feminism as a political movement, the struggle to end sexist oppression. So, in this definition of feminism, you get more of like the, the call to action, right? Like it's a movement to end something that's oppressive, um, sexist oppression. So, in her definition, she says that feminism does two things. It directs our attention to systems of domination, so you have to pay attention to the systems that are put in place, right? and the interrelatedness of these systems of domina- domination based on sex, race, class, sexuality, gender. We can just keep um, keep adding to the list. So it directs our attention to these systems, their interrelatedness, and then it calls us to examine our role, right, in the maintenance and perpetuation of these systems. So my kind of go-to definition is feminism is the calling out of age-old patterns of oppressive orders. So we have them, and we've had them for a long time. Um, and so feminism's kind of first order um, is, yeah, kind of first order of attention is institutionalized sexism. But Very early on, you know, in the feminist movement, women quickly saw and pointed out the interrelatedness of the many systems, right, of oppression. So it's not just about institutionalized sexism, but also institutionalized racism, institutionalized heterosexism. Um, Anything else? Classism, right? So, what is it addressing? Why do we have to have a whole movement of it? It's basically a response, right, to the awareness that these systems have been with us for a long time. Anybody know what some of the names that are used for the systems of oppression based on gender and sex? Patriarchy. Yes, patriarchy, right? <laughs> patriarchy and Elizabeth Shizio-Ferenza's term, kiriarchy. Right? So we recognize, like Bell Hook's definition, that these things are really kind of ingrained, right? And so patriarchy is another way of naming institutionalized sexism that we've set up our society in ways, we set up our society in ways that benefit some people as a group over others. Right? In the case of institutionalized sexism, that benefit men as a group over women. Um, And even that, right, like already we're, we have very kind of fixed categories of human. That's what you know, kind of embedded patterns do, right, we we categorize and fix people as if we're, as if we always fit nicely into these, but we know that these understand, these categories are much more fluid and broad. Um, But just the very, fact of categorizing humans and putting us in a certain kind of hierarchical relationship or relationship of um, inequality is um, an age-old pattern. So, these are just to give you some definitions of feminism. Now, theology. What do we do when we say we do theology? Who has the best definition of theology? <laughs> Who has a, their best attempt at a definition? Study of religion, study of religion. Um, yes. So there's, it's definitely, theology definitely involves the study of religion. The way that it's different, for example, from what I teach in the religious studies classroom, so I teach at Cal State Northridge, it's a state school, and that's a religious studies classroom. So there's something a little bit different between religious studies, or the study of religion, and theology. And that is (laughs) that one usually does theology from within a tradition. Right, you're reflecting critically on the things of religion, the understandings of the divine, the nature of humans, nature of our relationship with one another, and you're doing that critical reflection within a particular tradition. That kind of makes it theology, as opposed to religious studies, where, as an academic, right, I'm studying it more from the outside. Well, today I want to let you know that I'm standing here as a theologian, not as a professor. (laughs) So we're going to be thinking critically uh, about feminist theology within the tradition that I claim and I think that you all are related to, which is Christianity. I'm sure that there's people here who might not be. Um, But in terms of the feminist theology, it's the critical reflection on Christian praxis. This is from... um, Gutierrez. First name. Gustavo Gustavo Gutierrez, thank you. (laughs) Critical reflection on Christian praxis in light of the Word of God, right? So, in light of the sacred texts that we have within this tradition, Christianity. But we're doing it with the concerns of institutionalized, of the reality of institutionalized sexism, with the concerns of the full humanity of women and other persons. Because remember, feminist theology recognizes the interrelatedness of all of these oppressions. Hydration station. Okay, so let's start with the academic methodology. Feminist theology then, as an academic method, prioritizes some things, pays attention to some things, which we can already, uh, we're already making obvious by the defining of our terms, right? So it's gonna pay attention to women's experience. Why? Not just for the sake of women's experience, right? All human experiences are important, valuable, necessary to reflect on, but because that is historically not been the experiences that are taken into account. So feminist theology is going to be concerned with, with that which has been systemically marginalized. Certain people's experiences have been systemically marginalized. So as an academic method, and you all, I, I did listen to the podcast from uh, Tammy, Tammy Schneider Schneider, thank you (laughs) just know her as Tammy Um, she was bringing you an academic lens right to the to the scripture reflection on Sarah and Hagar I think she pronounced it Um, so it's going to ask questions about whose experiences are taking into account and from what perspective one of the things she pointed out right is that it matters where you stand, from what angle you're looking at something, right? She says if you're looking at Sarah from one tradition, you're going to see one thing. If you're looking at Sarah from a different religious tradition, you're going to understand something else about her. So feminist theology as an academic method pays attention to these things. It's going to ask, what have been the sources of authority that have been the ones who have gotten to shape a tradition, right? Which things have been considered part of the canon or the official, you know, kind of text of a tradition and which ones have been left out and why, right? So it tries to uncover, um, it tries to recover, sorry, not uncover, and uncover actually both, uncover and recover lost or or marginalized resources because a feminist approach to to theology and religion is gonna know that there's no one way of doing it, right? That where we stand makes a difference to where we end up. Where we stand makes a difference to what we see. And so we gotta see from different perspectives, from different people's experiences, from different sources of authority that have been neglected. Why, why do this work? Why do it from this, through this method, from these marginalized experiences? Anybody have thoughts? I know, I like the interaction, you know. Yeah, I mean. Very basic, yeah. We don't have a full picture. We can never have the full picture from one dominant point of view. We need the other ones. Why else? There's a thousand reasons, so you all have to come up with two more at least. Yeah, to give voice to voices that have not been um, listened to, attended to. Yeah, most often, right, those who the systems and the institutions oppress, their voices are not valued, so they've been systemically ignored. So, yeah, to kind of bring voice, to listen to the voices that haven't been heard before and say, oh, yes, I just want to keep asking why. So then, yes. Yes. <laughs> That's true, yeah. I mean, if Aaron was the only picture of humanity we had, it would be a very you know, particular picture of humanity. It would be a very you know, like, uh, specific, particular, and in some ways limiting, right? We need to have you know different representatives of humanity to kind of give us a picture of who we are. Yeah, I like that. I had never thought about it that way, but I like it. I can work with that <laughs> um, because when we do that, we then effectively can know how to disrupt these patterns that have been so deeply embedded, right? That's the why, because we've got to change these things. <laughs> Right? we got to change these oppressive patterns that have been institutionalized in our society and our way of doing things in our relationships. So what I want to suggest is that there are three layers to doing feminist theology. And I really think about this in terms of who we are as church, who we are as a congregation of people. Like, you know, I I attend a church church, Mission Hills Christian Church in the Valley. Yeah, since I work in the Valley, I found my church in the Valley, even though I live in LA. Um, but I get to be with them regularly. I mean, sometimes I, I'm not as regular, but I'm getting better. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but we get to do something when we come together, right? We get to be part of each other's formation when we come together. We're a group of people that has the opportunity to, like, bring our energies together for something. And so what I want to say is that when talking about feminist theology, there's three kind of layers of work. The first one is seeing. I'm going to list them first, and then I'll give you a little more about them. The first one is seeing, right? The first thing we got to do is just be willing to see the systemic oppressions, be willing to see these patterns. The second layer is in acknowledging our own collective complicity in these patterns, in these institutionalized forms. And then the third layer is the deeper critical reflection to get underneath of what made these patterns possible in the first place. What set these things in place? So let's talk about seeing a little bit. I was recently reading the 1980 Republication of Women, Church, and State, the original expose of male collaboration against the female sex. You can imagine this is like the first wave of feminism. This is Matilda Jocelyn Gage, right, just calling it out. And in this book, she did extensive research. I mean, when you read it, it's kind of it's really sobering, you know what I mean? To read the ways in which you know, the title of a book, the church and the state have really kind of worked hard, right, at keeping women in a particular place in society. Who had worked really hard over history different laws, through different social conventions, um, yeah, at really creating, right, a second class of citizenship based on gender. So you read this, and you get depressed. <laughs> you, I mean, you see how deep the problem is, and you read this, something that was written, ooh, I can't remember the original date of publication, it was in the 1800s. Um, And then you're struck by how relevant it still is. You mean how close to our reality it still is. And so seeing is hard work. Seeing actually requires courage. Because we'd rather not see, especially when we're the ones who the system is directed at, right? Or if we're the ones who the system privileges, it takes courage to see. Because when you, once you see, and Mary Daly says this, once you see, everything changes. The old securities are gone. The old forms no longer comfort. And you kind of have to face this like unknowing, this like existential crisis of like, oh my gosh, now what? So, early feminist both those in the 19th century and the second waivers of the 20th century, they were deeply convinced that if women, and Mary Daly always said men if there are any, who were willing to be awakened to this seeing, to the reality of these oppressive structures, if they were willing to see, it would be a spiritual revolution. And it would be spiritual because it would demand deep work to actually do something to change these systems. So the first level is just seeing. The second level then, oh yeah, I have one more note about Mary Daly. She said it is not prudent to see because seeing means everything changes. Um, But this kind of change is exactly, this kind of destabilizing seeing is exactly what's needed if we're going to create new patterns. we got to destabilize the ones that are here. I have a one. I'll save that. Okay. The second layer then is acknowledging our complicity. The sincere, acknowledging our complicity out of a sincere desire to want to participate in making things be different, to really want to do the work of un, of changing these patterns, of undoing them and changing them. So publicly, we see communities of faith already doing this. Right? What are the ways? What are some of the public ways? And you all probably participate in some of these that Communities of faith are participating and actively working to in, to acknowledge their complicity in systems and to help make change. What's some of the activism you all have seen communities of faith involved in? Yeah, I mean, just the marches, the rallies, the showing up, I was like, yeah, pictures, uh, um, on Facebook yesterday of some of my friends who were getting arrested in their you know clergy garb sometimes I think that 's the only good reason to have clergy garb <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? to have that public witness of doing something out of a position of faith of protesting injustices, and they were um, being arrested protesting um you know, some pipeline that was going through basically an economically poor neighborhood. And so where did they put, you know, where did they run the oil through the more vulnerable communities? You know, this is part of our systemic racism. Um, But yeah, and we see churches, communities of faith saying like, yes, we see these systemic problems and we're going to show up to do something about it. But then... There's also um, acknowledging complicity and being willing to do that at a deeper level of real critical self-reflection. Sometimes I think even like doing series like this, right? Like the Voices series where you're like going to study an issue and going to bring different voices, you know, to kind of attend to them. Churches are doing book studies in the upcoming, Church community that I'm a part of, you know, we've been doing a lot of anti-racism work um, and reading different books that kind of um, expose us to the deep roots of racism in our country. Currently, we're um, doing some work on LGBT Christianity and doing some of the deep seeing of the ways that you know our churches have been complicit in you know violence against um, sexualized minorities. Um, Minoritized sexualities. I'm saying that backwards, but you know what I'm saying. Um, Violence against trans folks. I mean, like our churches have been complicit in like real direct ways to this kind of oppression. And so doing like deep reflection about the ways in which as people of faith, we have participating in preserving these systems and perpetuating them. That, I think, is the the next layer of work, the third layer of work, that makes it possible to then really make a turn, to really get at the substructures of what make these oppressions, um, yeah, possible. And so when you do the deep, kind of slow work of reflecting collectively, critically, Um, having the courage to see, then you also make possible, you open up the space to make a turn to something different. And here then, this is the, um, I gave you the, earlier, kind of my favorite way of talking about feminist theology, and I said it was the calling out of age-old patterns of oppressive orders. Well, I didn't give you the second part, which you, I don't think you should have the first part without the second part. Because it's one thing, right, to call out the systems that are oppressing different parts of our our human family. You need the second part, which is calling them out and in order then to practice something altogether different. And in order to practice something altogether different, we have to make certain turns. (laughs) Like literally, this is the thing I, this is why I'm still a Christian. Because I think the gospel's first call to us is to prepare to change. This is why I love the gospel of Mark. I think I talked about it when I was here a few years ago. But it's like the gospel of Mark basically begins with John the Baptist. Preparing the way, and then when Jesus speaks, he basically speaks a call to repentance, which is basically to change, to turn around, to go towards different way of doing things, a new a new social order, a new political social order that takes into account all the people. You know what I mean, that doesn't set up these distortions among us in relationship and society. So, in feminist theology, then. In order to make these turns, we have certain emphases. One, the centrality of relationships. Actually attending to the complex reality that human relationships are. Taking those seriously, though. Collaboration and dialogue, doing the work together, finding and looking for those who are already part of the work and like joining arms, you know, becoming, um, if, we're com- if we've been complicit in the systems of oppression, then we're going to become accomplices in changing those systems, right, and moving towards creating something new. There's a turn in feminist theology towards the taking seriously the everyday, lo cotidiano. This comes from Mujerista theology. Taking seriously people's everyday realities, people's lives on the day to day level. Like my experience as a woman is going to be very different than Randy's experience because we have different bodies. You know, because our society treats us different based on that. Maybe I get treated different because I have a shaved head. I don't notice it anymore, but apparently. Uh, when I'm with other people, they're like, oh my gosh, look how much they stare at you. I don't even notice because I'm looking at you. But, um, but our body, like in our embodiment, how we experience life on the day to day basis matters. We got to take that seriously. So feminist theology has that turn towards the everyday, lo cotidiano. Feminist theology challenges the norm of objectivity or the idea that there's an objective way of looking at this, or a normative way of looking at this. Because if we have, we acknowledge that there's oppressive patterns, right? Like patterns in place that have conditioned us to a certain way of thinking, a certain way of seeing, certain way of relating, then we know that these come from a particular place, from a particular perspective. And so when we bring other perspectives, other voices, and we get that fuller picture, right, both of society and humanity, then we see that there's more ways possible. So we reject the idea that there's ever one way or ever one norm or ever one objective perspective. I'm always going to be suspicious when someone says, well, if you look at this objectively, does that mean looking at it the way you look at it? You know, so you just got to, you know, you got to wonder about that. Um, Yeah, like, I can say, say if, if that was a clear window, I can say, seriously, if I look out that window, do you not see that tree? But if Aaron is standing right in front of the window and he looks out the window, he's looking at the flowers instead. It matters where we stand. And so we might even say, objectively speaking, there's a tree there, but it matters where we stand and who we are and our angle. So anyways, be suspicious of objectivity. Um, So then a turn to the body, attending to the the reality of the fact that we're human. You know what I mean? Like in this physical form, and that comes with all kinds of things taking that seriously. And what happens when we attend to these things is that we actually open up space to think differently about how we do things together. So in church, you might think differently from one visit to the next how you might do communion. I heard you all have changed the way you did communion from a few years back. But that's because we impact each other, because when we take in new information or we, we experiment, and I don't know, how did you all do communion before? Okay, yeah, so you have the kind of the ordained folk in the front, and yeah, and people line up, and now you all pass it to each other. Like, that's a different embodiment, right, of what communion means to you all. So, like, taking that seriously. So, your rituals might change, the language you use for God might change, your prayers might change, the songs you sing. All of this, this call, right, to the good news, to embodying the kind of divine reality that takes into account all of our different experiences, especially the ones that have been systemically marginalized, is deep, slow work. That's one of the things I like to um, emphasize, is that we're talking about trying to destabilize and Creatively, you know, move into new ways of doing things from very, like, deeply embedded, inherited traditions. Like, we have inherited these traditions that come with some very deep roots. And some of those roots are the ones that have, that give it life, you know, that keep it growing. And some of those roots are the weeds that have gotten in there. <laughs> I mean, that have kind of distorted our ways. And so like seeing, acknowledging our complicity, and then doing the deep critical work of reflection is a slow, continuous work. I have a lot of notes. I lost my place. So this is why many early feminists saw women's liberation, which is what gave birth to our feminist theologies. Feminist theologies really kind of were formed and took shape after the women's liberation movement in the 60s and 70s. And these early feminists really saw that women's liberation would not just result in a social revolution, but a spiritual revolution, because it requires us to tap into our deeper selves the parts of our being that have not been disciplined or colonized, that have not been distorted by the isms of our world, but that we actually have access to the sacred within us that is so much more expansive than what we have given form to. Imagine that. We have access within us and as a collective body to thinking and being in much more expansive and revolutionary ways that are good news. This is where I get a little Christian. (laughs) So feminist theologies invite us to a radical reorientation, a reordering of our lives together. And a recreation of them with all of our collective input taken into account and the reality of our systemic oppressions, our institutionalized oppressions that we have been a part of, complicit in, and inherited. But if we persist through the tensions and the struggles, then the possibility is that then we also can be blessed with new life. Sometimes I think about the fact that we have domesticated the radicality of the gospel. And I think feminist theologies, like queer theologies, black theologies, all of these different kind of critical theologies that developed at post-70s, you know, post-liberation movements, and some liberation movements that continue today, all of these do the work of destabilizing us, decentering us enough to do that turning that the gospel calls us to. So, I am going to leave you with four theological emphases that we can kind of keep in mind to help us. Think about the work that feminist theologies do. One is the fact that in Christianity we have an incarnate living God. That we have an understanding of the divine that is in human form. So, in human form, it is alive, it is accessible, and it is ever present. So that's a theological emphasis from Christianity that we can hold on to, to help us do this work, this work of co-creation, of participation and mutual relationality. Christianity, we have the affirmation that we are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei, that the divine is within each of us and that we can affirm the sacred presence of the divine as we stand before one another. That there's something we actually can give one another and receive from one another because we believe in the Imago Dei within us. Christianity and Jesus, and the way that Jesus lived in his community, in community with his friends and friends family, his society, we have an example of someone who lived with a preferential option for the poor and the marginalized. Christianity calls us to the work that feminist theology does because it calls us to attend to the marginalized, calls us to attend to those who have been systemically oppressed. And my favorite theological emphasis, from Christianity is the call to turn. It's repentance. It's the revolution. <laughs> the revolution, this manifesto in the Gospel of Mark, we have a manifesto that calls us to change our ways and believe in the good news. I get crazy when I talk about the Gospel of Mark because I love it so much. <laughs> It's literally Christianity calls us to repent, to turn around, to change our ways. Getting uncomfortable is supposed to be part of the package. Doing things differently, paying attention to the systems that have kept us in fixed ways that don't benefit one another well, that distort our relationships with one another. This is part of our call. And so my favorite part, my favorite part of church gatherings is communion, which is funny to me because I used to, I used to not participate in communion. Um, I used to think of it, think of it as like the celebration of sacrifice, you know what I mean, blood sacrifice. Um, And I was just like, yeah, no thanks. But like I said, right? When we expand, when we look from different perspectives, we gain different insights. And then I started to realize communion is all about a table practice. Communion is a politics of how to be in relationship with one another. Communion is an economic practice of sharing resources, sharing food, sharing a table with a weird group of people. It's supposed to be that way. If communion is not radical, then it's not communion. It's not the good news that we saw embodied, you know what I mean, in the New Testament. And so to lead us in communion, I'm gonna share a reflection that um, I think you all, some of you all might be familiar with. We did this um, when I was here last time, and I heard you all did this um, on Mother's Day. Um, but it's basically leading our communion reflection with a shortened version of a poem by Reverend Dr. Ala Rene Bozart. And it's a word of reflection that reminds us that before Jesus was his mother, and Elizabeth, and John the Baptist, and Zechariah, and the innkeeper, and the barn owner, the animals, and a whole host of companions, we often forget that there was a whole community of people always involved in the incarnation of Christ. We make a, the mistake, those of us who call ourselves Christian, of exalting Jesus as if he lived and loved and ministered and died in isolation. But he didn't. But perhaps it can be comforting or somewhat somehow easier to think that we have this hero or this shira who we can turn to who will make everything better, who will swoop in and save us, or who already has. But when we do this, we distort the truth that it takes a whole community of people to embody a new divine reality. And when we exalt Jesus as if he was a solo savior, We do so at the expense of many. We effectively erase all the others who also participated and continue to participate in this incarnation. And in turn, we stunt our own imagination of how we too can play a role in giving flesh and blood to a new divine way of living and relating. We need a community of people with whom to practice and embody such a way of life. And so at communion, everyone is welcome. Everyone may share the bread, and everyone may share the wine. And so we'll begin with the reflection that before Jesus was his mother. Before supper in the upper room, breakfast in the barn. Before the Passover feast, a feeding trough. Before his cry, her cry before his sweat of blood, her bleeding and tears, before his offering, hers, before the breaking of bread and death, the extending of her body and birth, before the offering of the cup, the offering of her breast, before his blood, her blood, and by her body and blood and his body and blood, came his whole human being. The wise ones knelt to hear the woman's word in wonder, holding up her sacred child, her God in the form of a babe. She said, receive and let your hearts be healed, and your lives be filled with love, for this is my body, this is my blood. So we're all invited to take and pass it on. And whether you eat or don't eat, drink or don't drink, you are welcome to come out to new life at this table.
0: (laughs) Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here is this week's unedited discussion. you
1: ask me questions now. I hope you have some. You know how many of my little note papers I skipped because I lose my place and so there's so much more here. <laughs> well, I have, I have a question to get it started, I guess. Um, could you, oh,
0: Could you please speak maybe to why misogyny and patriarchy is so just stubborn and rooted in church culture?
1: It's definitely rooted in our sacred texts. I mean, it's there. We can pretend it's not. Um, But the interesting thing about it is that what's also embedded in our sacred texts is so much more, right, than what can possibly get translated to any given language right? If we think about, like, I mean, we have the Hebrew Bible, and then we have the New Testament written in different languages. And scholars, I mean, you see how many different versions of the Bible there are, right? Because they're basically different translations. And we have, you know, especially in, in the Hebrew Bible and in, in Hebrew, we have words, right, that have so many multiple meanings but they get translated to a single meaning in english and so we do just have certain patterns that dominate Um, but there's a lot more there though that we can uh, mine for Uh, we have our our you know metaphors for god are more than just male in the scriptures um our metaphors for you know the commonwealth of god the reign of god the kingdom of God. Like we we have certain patterns, you know what I mean, that kind of take root and they become the way we think about it, so we think about king and kingdoms um, and we think about, you know, especially in the context of the Roman Empire, Jesus was, you know, using the language of kingdom in a particular way to contrast, right, the social order that was in place. But if we think about that expansively, we can like open up our frameworks, like how, what are other ways, right? What, what are other metaphors that are already there, that are still there, that we just don't allow, or we don't give voice to, right? That we don't refer to as often. And so I think it's in our sacred texts, um, but I think there's also more there. There's always more there. There's a surplus that we don't access. Um, but then you know, besides it just being in our sacred text, it's in our social order. I mean, there are big theories, <laughs> like sc- scholarly theories on like the roots of our patriarchal kind of ways of, of being socially um, in the world. Um, you know, some of them have to do with uh, the turn to, from uh, nomadic culture to a, uh, um, agrarian culture where you had to have people doing certain jobs that kind of embed certain roles based on gender and things like that. Um, so, you know, there's, there's other bigger theories, but they're not as compelling to me. I want us to have access, you know, to point our direction to the access of, a, of our own tradition, you know, so what's already there in the sacred text that we have not attended to? okay
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah you could do it too it doesn't really right matter <laughs> what are some examples of doctrines that are going to change when we do them with the feminist reading uh, i know like atonement would be one um, what, what would be some other ones atonement
1: the doctrine of the church ecclesiology Who are we as a body? Do we function as a body? What kind of body are we? What does it mean to be church? In our, you know, curiarchal forms, we have a very kind of top-down way of organizing. You know, generally speaking, um, as a church, you know, you have the ordained clergy you know you have this uh, leadership you we we relegate decision-making to just a few people when you start thinking from a you know feminist point of view uh, yeah intercultural point of view why do we elevate some roles over others does that make sense So like, you might start thinking about how can we organize differently in ways that we get to have a lot more input into our decision making, into how we structure um, organizationally, how we do our rituals, how we spend our money. I think all of these things, I mean, I think everything gets disrupted. (laughs) You know, when you start looking at it from feminist, intercultural, queer ways. Um, but I think the nature of church, the doctrine of the church, who we are, is a big one. Um, language and metaphor for God. I mean, how we, yeah. Mm, I'll give you an example. So I'm from LA, born and raised. It's a weird example, but I'm from LA, born and raised, and I lived in Boston for 11 years. When I went to Boston, it was such a culture shock. Um, and in the context I was at at Boston University, it was very white. I think that when I got there as a master's student, there was one other Latino, um, Mexican American, in the whole school of theology, Boston University School of Theology. So I was just like in major, like, withdrawal. <laughs> Right? of just like things Latino, you know, things Mexican. Um, And so I started watching George Lopez. You know the show, George Lopez, remember that show? And, because I was just like, you know, I don't know, it was just like, there was a familiarity, like I thought it was hilarious, like I loved it. You know, they do a little Spanglish there, um, you know, and some of the cultural jokes and stuff. And then it was funny because some friends from L.A. were visiting and then I had George Lopez on, they're like, you watch George Lopez? And I was like, yeah, why? And they're like, "They're like it's so sexist. You know? And I was like, it is? And so I started paying attention to it. I was like, oh my gosh, it is. Like, it's so sexist. But the thing is, I was hungry, right? I was hungry for just like connection to like my identity, you know, my culture and stuff. And so think about, in terms of our language and prayers and symbols for the divine, for God, who are we leaving hungry? Who doesn't get to see themselves reflected? So I think that also would be something that gets impacted.
0: Yeah. That's okay. We want to make sure people can hear it on the podcast. Hi, Tina. You don't don't have to if you don't want to. Okay. Okay. Just don't remind me next time. (laughs) Um, I wanted to make a comment because it's something that has come up a few times uh, as we've been doing this Voices series that is focused on feminism, and that is the question of why is patriarchy and misogyny so deeply rooted in the church? do you want to guess who keeps asking that question? Uh, <laughs> um, but I think it, um, to your point right now with George Lopez that that I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that patriarchy and misogyny is rooted in the church. And I, I personally think that it's also rooted in our culture uh, in that sometimes we make the mistake of pretending that it's not anymore and that maybe it's more specific to the church, whereas I would make the argument like, it's so deeply embedded in a lot of our culture that we don't even notice it, right? To your point with George Lopez, because I had the same, basically the same story also with George Lopez, Uh, (laughs) where I was like, it's so funny. Oh my gosh, you're right, it is sexist. Uh, (laughs) um, So I wondered if you could kind of talk to that a little bit about how, how much of What we view as the culture of the church is reflective of the culture just of our world. And if you have any examples of maybe if there are cultures that are are different and how they interpret the text differently. Thank
1: you. Oh, and Caleb, want to add to that? And add
0: on. Also, from a Mexican American perspective, because that's my background.
1: Thank you. That's a lot. Well, for sure I agree with you in terms of, um, I do not think patriarchy or racism, classism, heterosexism is a church problem. Original, or not exclusively, absolutely not. (laughs) No, but I feel a sense of responsibility, right? To, To take more responsibility, to work, to undo it, to be different, because For those of us who identify as Christian, we follow an incarnation, right? We follow a way that is supposed to be good news to the poor, right? That's supposed to be good news to the marginalized. And so I just put more kind of responsibility on us to embody something that others can taste and see as good. This is from... um, Lo Fink, I can't remember his first name, but he has my favorite kind of understanding of my favorite kind of um, writing on like why, why God needs the church, and the reason is that we're supposed to be embodying something that the world can taste and see as good, and so no, it's not just a pay, you know a church problem, but I think we can do better. Um, I don't know that I can answer or like I mean about like the other part of the question was cultures that aren't patriarchal and you know there is scholarship on that it's very contested it's contested I'm not saying that it's not real or possible, Well, but here's a point to make, though. So, you know, there are writers who, who um, and scholars, especially feminist historians, who, who write about smaller cultures, I mean, not smaller, but you know what I mean, like, in like historical, small communities, right, that have embodied more um, peace-oriented, right, um, culture, way of being socially. Um, even kind of matriarchal in a non-hierarchical way and stuff. And they exist, and it's just not the scholarship I have in the top of my head. And I think what's important about that, whether the, his, whether the kind of historical evidence is contested or not, I think we need to explore those more um, because we need things to expand our imagination. Like our imagination is stunted. <laughs> It really is, right? Because that's what norms do. Norms fix us, you know what I mean, in a certain pattern of thinking. And so we need to seek out those creative, those smaller, those disruptive, those more radical ways of being um, in order to kind of expand our own, expand our own forms. Um, For me, this is why I love, love, love the radical feminist, and especially the the lesbian feminist uh, of the second wave, because there was this whole like, you know, like group number of of women radical lesbian feminists who went and like left society, like they're like, bye, you know, gotta go, gonna go do my own thing, and like they have women land, they bought land, and they have they you know they live in like communal kind of ways, and they live off the grid. They still exist in New Mexico, and in Texas, and Arizona, um, in the desert. I love it. Um, but we need to kind of like be inspired by those who are just thinking outside the box, and doing things differently, and saying, I'm gonna let this change me. I mean, I think these these systems are so oppressive. Like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be bound by them. And they go and do something different, and I love them for that. They inspire me to think about like, what can we do different? What should we be doing different? Yeah, they've been good news to me. So there's one example. I don't know, from Mexican-American point of view, the only thing I can say is that I, have, I was raised Catholic, and I always went to Spanish-speaking Catholic church. Um, and so I never had an understanding of God or Jesus as like a Savior. You know what I mean? It was much more like... You're a church in community, you know what I mean? And God is ever-present. Like, yeah, God is ever-present. Like, God is like the air you breathe. Like, there's no reality outside of, like, the divine everywhere. Um, so as I decided to kind of stay Christian-identified, um, but decided to do that within Protestantism, I think part of what I bring is just that community orientation. Um, Just much more familia way of thinking about church. Um, Yeah, and like always room at the table. I mean, like there's this expression in Spanish in my family, and I'm sure it's in lots of families like, there's always room for more and more. You just gotta add more water to the pot of beans. Echale más agua a los frijoles. Um, because there's always room for more. You know what I mean? Like, we always have space for one another. We can always make space for one another. And, like, I think just in terms of my cultural influence on my Christianity, there's always room for everybody.